0: From the FLI Audio Files, Will the Paris Climate Agreement Succeed? An interview with Seth Baum of the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute. I'm Ariel Kahn, the news editor for the Future of Life Institute.
1: I'm Seth Baum, the executive director of the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute.
0: And this week we want to discuss the Paris Climate Talks that ended December 12th. There's been a lot of fanfare in the media in the past week about how successful these were. Because 195 countries came together with an agreement, which is a huge success. But reading some of that agreement was less than inspiring. There were a lot of suggestions and urges and advising, but no demanding or requiring or committing. The countries have all agreed to try not to let global temperatures increase beyond 2 degrees Celsius of pre-industrial temperatures, and they're aiming for 1.5 degrees Celsius as the maximum. This is a nice lofty goal, but is it possible? The agreement calls for countries to basically check in every five years, but with the rate at which the temperatures are increasing and climate change is affecting us, is this going to be sufficient to accomplish much? I'd also like to point out that this meeting was called the COP21 because this group has now convened every year for the last 21 years. So why should we expect this agreement to produce greater results than what we've seen in the past? Seth?
1: Well, we shouldn't necessarily expect this to produce uh, that much greater results, but we should. I, I think uh, the, the early take is that the Paris Agreement is probably about as good as we can reasonably expect it to get. It set goals, but it didn't set mandatory requirements for all the countries around the world. And it, it, there's no enforcement penalty if countries don't comply with, with whatever they say. And there's a really basic reason for that which is the way treaties work in the United States. If the United States is going to ratify a treaty, it requires the support of 67 senators. And the way American politics are right now, we're just not getting 67 senators to support an ambitious climate change treaty, or probably not any climate change treaty at all. And so the Paris Agreement was carefully crafted to not require the U.S. Senate to uh, have 67 senators supporting it. And so that's why we see some of the provisions that are key to the agreement, in particular, no strict requirements to meet certain emissions targets.
0: So are are you saying then that part of this Paris agreement is because U.S. senators can't agree that climate change is an issue?
1: Yeah, because a large portion of the Senate does not want to support uh, any climate change treaty at all. A lot of them don't think we should do anything about climate change. They just blow it off as an issue. And, and then of those who are concerned, some of them just aren't interested in going in on an international treaty on it.
0: But 195 countries are involved, and a lot of this really does come down to the fact that our Congress doesn't want to deal with it.
1: I won't say we're the only country that is really holding things back. There could be other countries that would slow things down. I don't really know what Russia's position is on it. Russia's a big fossil fuel country. It's easy to imagine some of the other big fossil fuel countries like Saudi Arabia wanting to, to slow things down. But the United States is such an important international player. And the opposition to a climate change treaty in the United States is so strong, which when combined with the, the need to get 67 senators, that this could easily be the single dominant factor slowing down all of international uh, uh, politics on climate change.
0: And so going back to the goals of staying below two degrees Celsius and ideally not exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius as, as an increase, is that possible? I, I mean, I think graphs that, that were being shown indicated that, that these temperatures could be hit within the next 15 to 20 years.
1: Well, it, It's possible. Is it, is it likely? That's another question. I mean, we're, we're not there yet. But I think we shouldn't get too much from the fact that there's 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius in the Paris Agreement. These are nice aspirational goals, but they're not the, the crux of the agreement. The crux of the agreement is sending it back to national governments to take their own steps and use the international system to basically put a little bit of peer pressure On different countries around the world to try and get them to come up with the most ambitious emissions reductions plans nationally, domestically, that they think that they're able to do. And maybe that'll line up with one and a half or two degrees Celsius, maybe it won't. But at least putting those aspirational goals out there might help compel countries to act more than they otherwise would have.
0: And can you elaborate a little bit on why the two degrees is sort of the cutoff point?
1: The specific two degrees number came from an early uh, international climate change conversation. And you can make a bit of a scientific case for it in a way, but it's, it's very imprecise. So I personally don't favor thinking too much in terms of strict cutoff points, right? The difference between 1.9 degrees and 2.1 degrees is, is pretty trivial. The point is more that we should aim for something like two degrees instead of something like three or four or five degrees, all of which is is entirely possible with the amount of fossil fuels that we could be burning.
0: And do we expect that this will have more success than the last 20 years of meetings and agreements have had? Is there a reason to expect this one to be more successful?
1: I think there is. The bottom line is that we've learned a lot over the last 20 years about how international politics on climate change does and, and doesn't work. You know, for example, we've learned that there are certain things that you can't get through the United States Senate. And so if you want the United States to be at the table, and you do want the United States at the table, then you need to accommodate just how American politics works. The Paris Agreement doesn't have you know, strict requirements, doesn't allocate who's allowed to emit which emissions. Instead, it sends it back to the national governments to come up with their own plans. And what we saw from Kyoto is that the strict requirements basically get ignored because countries aren't going to follow them. And furthermore, it can give them incentives to to cheat to make sure that their requirements are as weak as possible. We've never tried this before in, in this format, and it's got a chance to at least help. But I think the bottom line and Paris shows this is that the bulk of the actions on reducing emissions are not going to come from international negotiations. They're going to come from national and local activities and things of that sort.
0: Now, looking at climate change in general, how does it present a catastrophic risk?
1: Well, climate change already is uh, not, not just a catastrophic risk, but it's, you know, uh, been associated with catastrophes actual catastrophes not not risks of catastrophes and i i live in new york city and i think it's fair to say that hurricane sandy which hit us a few years back would not have hit us as hard were it not for climate change the simplest explanation is that the sea levels risen a little bit and that caused the storm surge that swept through town to sweep through a little bit farther so climate change is already causing at least Local catastrophes like what we saw from Sandy. But as far as climate change is a global catastrophe, the key question is could climate change cause permanent damage to the entirety of global human civilization? And climate change is not some quick event that happens all at one time. Instead, climate change moves slowly. And so the way I would think about climate change is not could it destroy civilization on its own, but Could it make it more likely that civilization will fall apart because of all these other things going on? And I think the answer is definitely yes, even for relatively small amounts of of, um, uh, warming.
0: And now I want to go back to the Middle East. If we're going to decrease or if we're going to limit how much the global temperature will increase, we obviously need to decrease the amount of fossil fuels that we're using and i'm wondering if, if that would also be destabilizing then for the uh, middle east gosh
1: yeah this is this is a big one and it's I, I think this is not talked about nearly as much as it should be so we have countries like saudi arabia and its its immediate neighbors whose economies are mainly dependent on the sale of fossil fuels yeah this is this is a really thorny one i've i've heard people suggest the idea that you know we really should ramp up an aggressive climate change policy because that'll starve the Middle East of its money and and it'll starve ISIS, it'll starve the terrorism and and that'll help us achieve our foreign policy goals. I'm really nervous about that. I think we we bankrupt the Middle East with great caution. First of all, we need to act aggressively to reduce emissions uh, but at the same time we need to find more constructive means for the Middle East to have its economy run So, for example, the United Arab Emirates, what we see in in Dubai, they're really trying to diversify their economy. Uh, That's a very positive thing that I wish more of the Middle East would be taking. Iran, actually, of all countries, has a, a relatively diversified economy, and they're in position to take some positive steps towards an economy that's not so dependent on fossil fuels.
0: And going back to the climate talks, I mean, one of the things, it you know, all these leaders from countries got together and came to this agreement, but in many countries, ours included, um, the leadership will change uh, if, say, America ends up with a much more conservative leader in the near future.
1: If we elect Donald Trump.
0: <laughs> I was going <gonna, laughs> to not name names. <laughs> For example. <laughs> yes. And I don't, I don't
1: think Trump's going to get elected, but who knows? We'll see. But
0: yeah, so... I, if, I, I
1: no crystal ball.
0: <laughs> so if someone who is, you know, not quite as convinced that climate change is an issue that we need to address, will they still follow through with the agreement that was set forth? Or do we need to worry about them just ignoring it? Yeah,
1: I, we need to worry. They'll probably do some more to reduce emissions than they otherwise would have done where the agreement not in place where what Obama's done with the EPA, the, the clean power plan or whatever it's called, all of those things will continue to help even after the Obama administration ends, regardless of who is elected next. But this really, really matters who the United States elects for president next year and for Congress. It's going to make a huge impact. At the same time it's it's not the only game in town even within the united states so what public perceptions are across the country what uh, local scale policies are um in, in cities and states all that stuff really matters too and so there's uh, the the nice thing is that there's always a lot of levers you can pull a lot of opportunities to get involved even in your your daily life all this stuff helps to to you know one extent or another and so while we should hope for a president who's on board with taking strong action to reduce emissions, even if that doesn't happen, uh, you know, that, that doesn't mean all hope is lost. There'll still be plenty we can do to make a difference.
0: Nice. Well, so on that note, is there anything else you want to add?
1: No, no, thanks. It's been a, a good conversation.
0: Yeah, I've enjoyed it and I feel like we've learned a lot. So thank you for sharing. And if anyone wants to learn more, please visit us at futureoflife.org.